Let's start in verse 1. The context is um, to believers, okay? This is written to a church, uh, the church of Ephesus, uh, and this is chapter 2. He just spent some really weighty theology in the first chapter. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all kind of weighty theology, and then chapters 4, 5, and 6 in Ephesians are the application of the first three chapters. So chapter 2, verse 1 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and it's going to go to elaborate, but let's stop there. You've been with us before. It's going to be a big Bible study together. First thing I want you to acknowledge, acknowledge is the you is to Christians. And that's important because it's going to talk about the past tense there. You can see it. You were. Now you may, um, as a non-believer in the room, not like what the Bible's about to put on you. But authoritatively, we trust the word over what you think about you. And the Bible's going to describe where you are if you're not a believer. And it's, it's describing where we were before we were a believer. Okay, so that's the kind of premise of what we got. I also want to just draw some attention. There's actually... Actually, the word that we get from ontological uh, in the first part there, word, uh, were, meaning it's um, this is how we are as opposed to, that's going to be important, in verse 4 describes how God is, okay? Just remember that when we come back to verse 4. Now, here's describing us. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now, it's going to go on to say in which you once walked, but let's just acknowledge what it says. How were we? We were dead. Now, the Greek word is nekros, um, but nekros means just more like a dead body. Nekris is the, the word in Greek for dead body. Nekros um, has an idea of literal and figurative. We kind of use it in both ways. And there's something called the BDAG, which is the gold standard for Koinia Greek. It describes it like this. Literally translated, something that lacks life. Now, we understand that. We, but we also use it far more figuratively, meaning figuratively we use it as described in the BDAG, not able to respond to impulses, perform functions, quote, unable, ineffective, and powerless. We say this, our phone is dead. My phone is dead. Now, I don't mean the phone's soul has left the phone case. I mean, it's useless. It cannot do what I need it to do. It's a paperweight at that point because it's not functioning as the way it needs to function. And in this moment, it's describing you as dead. Like you are ineffective. Now, that's tricky because if you're not a believer in you, you're going, well, I'm not dead. And even as believers, we look back on our past life and we go, well, I wasn't dead. I wasn't dead, right? Obviously, it's not a physical death. We have to ask, what kind of death is it? Well, the text tells us. It was, we were dead in trespasses and sins. When you hear the word sins, do you think mental, physical, emotional? Of course, sins pertains to all of that. No, this is spiritual. We were spiritually dead. Now, it may be obvious, but that's what it's saying. And so immediately we can kind of, you know, one plus one equals two. Our spirit is, and as the BDEG says, unable, ineffective, powerless. Your spirit can't do anything. That's how you were. You were spiritually dead. It was not possible to do anything. The way you could know what this looks like is, think of other faculties of how you operate. So we are spiritual, physical, emotional, uh, mental. When someone is mentally dead, we use pejorative terms like they're a vegetable. When they don't have brain activity and their body's on autopilot, can they solve a math equation? Can they read? Well, no, we, we recognize they have no brain activity. That's the same type of idea. The word here for that is your spirit. It can't do anything. Nobody in this room is rolling to a funeral unless dude's got faith, which I do, of course. But if you come to a funeral, you got faith, and somebody is, is there, and they're going to like watch the person in the casket raised from the dead. Again, I have faith, so I believe it can happen, but that's just me. Okay, Raised from the dead. No, no. We, we do entire pranks built in morgues on the premise that when someone's dead, they move because the person working at the morgue doesn't expect a dead person to move. Dead things do nothing. 
That's the point, all right? If I get stressed out enough. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. I always gotta say this. I was gonna bypass in the fourth, but I have to. It's the princess bride. It's the, he's not dead, he's mostly dead. Like, no, you're not mostly dead. You're all the way dead, okay? All the way dead. Dead in what? In which, or sorry, dead in your trespasses and sins, in, in which you once walked following the course of this world. So it's, it is true, right? If you're not a believer in here, you're walking around. It's true before we are believers, we are walking around almost like zombies. But even though we're walking around physically and we're spiritually dead, we're dead and we're living towards something. And what we're living towards, you once walked following the course of this world. So let's kind of get, get at the core of what's going on here. I think a better translation would probably be age. We are, whether you like it or not, we don't live in a vacuum. We are not raised in a vacuum. We don't make choices in a vacuum. We are byproducts of our environment in so many other ways. And so the culture, the age that we live in has kind of these general understanding. No, no one came into the room and wore white wigs because that's not a normal thing that we do. We used to do it hundreds of years ago. The great example of this, honestly, is the hot button topic right now within the conversation of social justice. Because social justice, the, the advocation for the removing of statues because they had slaves is on the table. And then on the other side, people are going, well, wait a minute, at the time that was normal, as evil as it was, it was normal. Right, And so what they're advocating was in that time, that's what they did. I think the same thing's gonna happen. 300 years from now, people are gonna read about what we did in the West, ripping babies from our wombs, from our mother's wombs, and they're gonna go, you did what? That's crazy that you did that. You just killed infants, right? And so in the future, they're gonna look at that, but right now, it's totally normal. The course of this world, our age says, that's a normal thing to do. That's a normal thing to do. You were, by default, in your spiritual deadness, just going along with what the world was doing. Now again, you may disagree with that synopsis. You're your own person. We'll get to that in a second. Once you once walked, following the course of this world, now, this world is going into a direction, not in a nebulous way. It's going in a direction because it's being led by someone. Who's it being led by? Once you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. One of the good things about scripture is the Bible's not interested in playing the gray game. The Bible's going to make things very black and white. We saw early on in Matthew, Jesus is gonna go, you're either for me or against me. And in this text, Paul wants to double down on that idea and go, the prince of the power of the air is Satan. So before you followed Jesus, you followed Satan. And again, if you're not, a, you're not a believer in here, you're going, I don't follow Satan. Okay, that's fine. The Bible is saying you follow Satan. Before we knew Jesus, we followed Satan. Now, of course, we're gonna read uh, in the state, follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Those people are still following Satan. And we go, well, no, I, I'm not, I'm not. And so what's helpful here is in verse three, it lays out what that looks like. Because I could ask you, how many of you guys have ever sacrificed a cat to Satan before? No one raise your hand, please. We don't, like, but how, like, if you ever, like, do you have 666 tatted on your forehead? No. When I think of following Satan, a Satan worshiper, I think of these crazy things. I wasn't doing that. I mean, yeah, I wasn't following Jesus, but I wasn't doing that. There's no middle ground. What the Bible wants to make clear is you were following Satan. You were following Satan. And so let's just ask, what did following Satan look like? Well, perfect question. Verse three, among whom you once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Following Satan didn't look like getting 666 tattooed on your forehead. It looked a lot like what you wanted. That's what it looked like. It looked like yourself. And I quote, it looked like you being a slave, carrying out the desires of your body and your mind. You wanted it. You, you needed it. You thought it. It's yours. 
Now here's what's crazy. Notice the juxtaposition. What I just described is actually celebrated in the world. Our modern um, course of the age right now tells you, do you, do what you want to do. That's celebrated in our context, right? The Bible's using the same exact language, but going, actually, that's satanic. You just doing what you want to do, carrying out your own desires, your own passions. You think you're autonomous, you're not. You're a slave to yourself, ultimately a slave to Satan, which I would love to go on a huge rabbit trail as to why Satan has chosen this tactic. But at the end of the day, it's pretty simple. What humans love is themselves. We love, you know whose ideas are the best? Mine. That's whose ideas are the best. And so we are caught up in the course of this world, just carrying out the desires of our body and of our mind. We want it, we take it, we're like children. When children don't have, they cry. When children are in need, they want. It's, it's just like a child. If, it, if it's not bad enough, the list that we have so far, notice he goes on to say in verse three, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now we actually get us a why. So before you were following Jesus, here's our, our why. It's because the reason you were doing this is because your nature, like the core of who you are is broken. Now, I know that's really hard for some of us to understand, Christian or not, especially within modern kind of evangelicalism, how much we still prompt the fact that you're an original snowflake and Jesus died on the cross only for you. The fact is, it's really hard for you to hear that your nature before Jesus was broken. It's broken. I, I think of Psalm 51, that my mother conceived me in sin. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is naturally wicked. Genesis 8, 21, that uh, the thoughts of men are continually evil from their youth. There's something wrong with the human psyche. Deep down, our nature is broken. Now, as a side note, let me just be clear. I'm not saying it's always been that way. God did not make us that way, but something is wrong. Mike Goheen says in his book, The Drama of Scripture, the high point of the Genesis story of creation is the making of humankind. In the Bible, man or woman is a creature designed and made by God as part of God's world. If we are faithful to what the Bible has to say about who we are, we cannot think of ourselves as merely random products of time and chance. Humankind is creaturely, and according to Genesis and the rest of the Bible, each human being is a special creature at that. God has made us good. The thing is sin changed us, you guys. It morphed us, it cursed us. In the same way, when you um, have a virus and don't want to cough, even though you don't want to cough or you don't want to throw up, the virus has done something. You're sick. Something happens even though you don't want it to happen. It's changed your nature. I mean, this is the example I used two years ago when we went through the doctrines of grace. I put a hawk right here and I put a piece of broccoli over there and I put a dead rabbit over there and I don't feed this thing. We change it or chain it here for a week and don't let it eat. And finally, we let this thing go. One gajillion times out of one gajillion times, the hawk is going to go to the dead rabbit, never to the broccoli. You could try to make it a vegetarian, a vegan. It just isn't. The core of its nature, of who it is, is a carnivore. It eats meat. That's what it does. And in the same way, we chose sin. We were spiritually dead. We could not choose otherwise. That's the state we were in. Now, before we read verse 4, and, and, and all this, let me quote real quick, uh, Mike, uh, Michael Horton, he says this, our choices are determined by our nature. We choose what we desire and we desire what is most consistent with our nature. If we are bound by sin, then it is not a natural ability that we have lost, but a moral ability. We can only choose sin and death. And we really do choose it, according to John eight forty four. Until God liber- uh, uh, liberates us from this bondage. Now, verse four, of course, starts with, but God. But if I can, just raise the level of despair for a second, right? Welcome to church, okay? Let's raise the level of despair. 
Because here's the problem going from verses three to four. Even as a Christian, I don't know the exact percentage, but let's say half the Christians even in the room, do not, you do not look back on your old life and think it's that bad. I mean, that's bad. That's a bad list. You were dead. You're dead in sin. You were uh, following the course of this world. You were following Satan. You lived out your own passions of your flesh. You carried out the desires of your body and mind. And you were by nature a child of wrath. That's a really, and, and it's hard because I don't know if the despair is, that's how bad it was. And for, if you're not a believer in here, you may disagree, but that's how bad it is for you right now. And so um, let me just kind of raise the level, maybe take you to a different time when we thought of ourselves differently. Um, 506 years ago, a man named Martin Luther, 1517, which we celebrated last week uh, on Reformation Day, um, he, he actually struggled in the opposite direction. You don't think you're that bad. He couldn't figure it out. Uh, we, we are familiar maybe with the term the Protestant Reformation. It's probably the most famous or most important um, uh, you know, historical moment in Western civilization. But how we got there with Martin Luther is, is kind of intriguing. I'm not gonna give his whole story how he became a believer, but when he became a believer, he struggled immensely with guilt and shame. Um, so much so when he joins the monastery, he set out to figure this out. He was told that he'll deal partially with his guilt and his conviction on this side of eternity, but then he'll deal the rest of it and, and it'll be kind of scurred off uh, uh, in purgatory. But that wasn't satisfactory to him. He calls himself the greatest monk that had ever monked in monkery, right? He, and, and I don't know if you've ever spent time with a monk in a monastery, but those homies go hard, right? So he's all in. So much so, he's going to confessional. This is obviously before the, the Protestant Reformation and before you know, we realized we confess our sins to God um, ourselves. But he was going to the confessional in the um, uh, confessional booth there. And the guy who kept receiving his confessions eventually told him to stop coming, right? Because you're coming too much. Every thought you have, we don't, like, because Luther wanted to get off his chest. What if he dies? He, wanted, he struggled so much towards the end of his writing before the Protestant Reformation. He said, I, I've come to a place where I hate God. He's, he's writing this down and he feels like Satan is taunting him and he takes the inkwell and throws it and shatters it against the wall. He has reached a point of despair to ever think and his struggle is simple. How am I ever to be holy as God, as holy as First Peter says? That's not possible. This, this, this is not computing. It's not going together. His despair was so great. It was so great. So before we get to verse four, it's you're dead. You have no chance of hope. Okay, that's where we were. And then, of course, verse four is the great alleviator. However bad it got, verses four through 10 exceed the greatness in the opposite direction. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So I want you to notice, look back at verse one, and you. In Greek, the word for and and but is the same word, kai. So it could say kai you, kai God, right? So uh, and you, and now, and God, or but God. It's creating this juxtaposition. It uses the same thing. This is literary genius here. The same um, ontological word that we have, the being word there, it says you were this way, but God is this way. Now, here's the difference. In verses one through three, it says you were this way, and it starts with the list of things that you did, and then it tells us why you did them. Why did you do them? Because your nature's broken. But now, in verse four, it's gonna start with who God is, and then it's gonna tell us what he did. Meaning, if you're looking at verse four, it says, but God, and it says two things, being rich in mercy, there's the first one, and the second one is because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, before we get into what he did, we get a why, don't we, in verse four, because, so it's telling us here's why he did what he did, and the core of who he is. So we get a motive and a state of being. Let's start with, with the, uh, the motive. The reason he's going to, as we are hopeless in this state, he's going to act on us, in short, well, I'll just quote it here, because of great love that he has towards you. 
Now, here's the example I've worked in the, uh, using the other three verse uh, services, so maybe this is helpful. Imagine, if you can, real quick, um, the person that you love most. Picture that person right now, okay? And I mean, you care about absolutely the most in your life. Could be a friend, could be you know, brother, sister, mom, a dad, a spouse, a child. Think of who you love most, all right? You got that person? I want you to imagine for a second you're walking along, you're walking in LA or something like that, and I don't know, LA's attacked. Just imagine for a second, terrorists come and they, they capture you, right? Everything that happened in Israel, you're kidnapped. And they put you on a boat and they drive you to the middle of the ocean. And I mean the middle of the middle of the ocean, like thousands of miles from any shorelines, okay? And they tie that person that you have in your mind right now, they tie their hands, they tie their hands, they tie their feet, and they duct tape their mouth, and they throw them overboard, okay? And then they say to you, your choice and they start to drive off. What do you do? What do you do? Now, before I even asked, what do you do? Subconsciously, you already started to answer the question, didn't you? You already knew if that happened to that person, what you would do. You already knew. Like, is it complicated at all? Dog, you're jumping in. I mean, you're, you're jumping in. You're like, and you probably will die with them. You're thousands of miles from any hope, but you're not going to let this person die. Why? Why are you not going to let this person die? because you love them. There is something deep down within you that has this affection towards them, there's this care for them that goes, I would rather be dead than live and then be dead. I care about them so much that I'm gonna run the risk a very, very less than 100,000% of a chance that I'm going to live, I'm running that risk. I'm running that risk because you love them. So whatever he's about to do, It comes from that place. He doesn't just love them more than you love them. He loves you more than you love them. So there's our motive. And the state of being is he's rich in mercy. So you and I share mercy, but he's rich in the stuff, okay? So he's rich in mercy and he loves us dearly. And this is what he does. This is what he does. Being rich in mercy because of the the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, a clear reference to verse one, of course, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So we were dead spiritually. We've already unpacked that. He made our spirits alive. It's called the doctrine of regeneration. You can Google it at some point, but he makes us alive. Now, this is actually kind of tricky because I don't know if Christians fully understand what substitutionary atonement means and how it works in all of this. So let me put an equation together that might be helpful because you're dead and he makes you alive. The question immediately is, how does he make us alive? The answer is in the text. He makes us alive because he ties us to Christ. So the equation goes like this. God is alive and you're dead. Okay, you're dead. Now God dies and you're still dead. Okay, so in becoming a man, he dies and he ties himself to you who's still dead. So God's alive, you're dead. God's dead, you're dead. But now because you're tied to God, the man Jesus Christ, right? This is the foundation of the gospel. He's now alive, but because you're tied with him, you're alive. So God's alive, you're dead. God's dead, you're dead. God's alive, therefore you're alive. You're made alive in Christ. That, that's, that's what the text is being put in front of us. It's not even done. It gets better than this. Not only are you made alive, and he adds this little, some of you guys have uh, parentheses or maybe just dashes, by grace you have been saved, okay? Before he goes on with this point, sometimes Paul writes off the wall at times, but this is really brilliant because you can ask the person, that loved one that we were just talking about in that whole ocean ordeal, ask that, let's say somebody comes to them three weeks later, everything's good, right? They go, how did you survive? They're not going 
you know what I did? I figured out how to hold my breath for three weeks and I hopped along the bottom of the ocean to a shore or like that. That's not what they're doing. Immediately, they're pointing to you. That's what they're doing. Immediately, I would, I would have been dead if it wasn't for you. They're, they're, they're directing where this needs to go, right? By grace, you have been saved because you did something. Someone else had to do something. And then he gets back into his point. He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, at the end of verse five, it, it mentions grace, right? And at the beginning of verse four, it mentions mercy. We have to understand the delineation between these two because verse six is like a huge catalyst that goes above and beyond what we're naturally thinking took place. Meaning, I've talked about this with us before as a church, the difference between mercy and grace. We just go through it, just kind of get us all on the same page. Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. That's mercy, okay? You did something wrong, but you don't get punishment. That's mercy. Grace is receiving something you don't deserve. And the example I've given a thousand times is, imagine a king, someone comes into that man's kingdom and kills his entire family, wife, kids, all that stuff. The king doesn't send out the brigade, uh, brigade. he ends up hunting down that man himself, about a week of hunting, finally gets, gets to him, has a sword to his neck, and upon uh, having the sword to his neck, he drops the sword and he says, you were forgiven. That's mercy. He has every right, not just because he's the king, but because he murdered his family, every right to kill that man. That man has now received mercy. But then he, after dropping the sword, takes the crown off his head and puts the crown on top of the guy's head and says, now you're king. That's grace. So he didn't receive the punishment, but he also got something he didn't deserve, which was now he's the king. When we read verse six, it would be enough for us to be made alive. That would be enough. But it goes above and beyond just being made alive. Now, beyond that, there's mercy. We didn't get what we deserve. Now grace is your royalty. And I don't mean in a cheesy cultural way. I mean the greatest being in all of eternity, the man Jesus Christ, think of where he's sitting in the heavenly realms. You get to sit with him. That's crazy. The turn of events and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He didn't just make you alive. You now sit with him for all of eternity. That's amazing. Now, verse seven, I think, parses out the wheat and the chaff in this because it says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So here's, here's why I think it separates the wheat and the chaff. Anybody who is truly a believer versus somebody who's playing believer reads verse seven a little bit differently. And it's hard because it gets at the ethos of who you are. Somebody is truly a believer. And we'll maybe use an example of somebody who's come to faith who like came from some hard stuff, ex-gangster, ex-drug addict, like did some really, really crazy stuff. When you ask them about how they came to the Lord, you're getting two things, dog, two things. One, they're gonna just put their head down and they're most likely honestly start tearing up. I don't care how tatted they are. They're gonna be so humbled by the fact that the creator of the universe would save them. They had no right in being saved. They know their sins. They're aware of the drugs they've done, what they did to other people. They're, 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 they almost in shame are humbled by the fact that God was saved. Or two, they're so boisterous about it, they're quick to give God praise. I've given you guys this example before, but one of my homies growing up ended up becoming a believer and uh, we were at Subway and the, the sandwich artist, because we're at Subway, the sandwich artist is making our sub and he orders a tuna sub and he asks the sandwich artist, he goes, hey, how many people can this feed? And she goes, I don't know, maybe one or two. I guess you can spread it out for three. And he goes, I know uh, somebody that can feed about 4,000 with that right there, right? He says, tuna and bread, you get it, fish and bread. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, we gotta get out of here. I'm so sorry, right? Because you know what? He knows, he knows, and he is boisterous about it. When we read verse seven, 
for the, the rest of eternity, in the coming ages, the angels and future generations are gonna go, holy crap, like if anybody can beat their chest, look how gracious this God is. Look how loving and merciful. In the coming ages, everyone's gonna be like, he is amazing. He was so gracious, so big. And this is why I think it separates the wheat and chaff because true believers go, he does deserve all the glory. I got no problem with that. He didn't, he didn't save me because I was awesome or I was some snowflake or you know, modern evangelicalism, the gospel is about you. No, 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 like it had nothing to do with you. He chose in his love to save you. Why did he save you? Because he loved you. Why did he love you? I don't know. I, he just did. And it's okay to stand back and go, and all I brought was sin. All I brought was deadness. That's all I brought. And he raised me to life. That's okay to be there. You don't have to be so prideful to think you had, no, he did all of it. He did all of it. And if you think I'm exaggerating the text, look at this. He gets to beat his chest. He's the big deal for eternity. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. I mean, what's crazy is like, what I pray this over our, our band as they receive the elements every Sunday, that if there's something in your salvation that you did, you have a reason to boast. You have a reason there. And there is a variant here. There's a disagreement in verse eight. When it says, for by grace you have been saved, you've got three options. Uh, what is and this? What is the this there? And this is disagreed upon. Option one is that this is grace. For by grace you have been saved, and this, grace, uh, is not your own doing. Option number two, for by grace you have been saved, Uh, Through faith, faith is this, faith and faith is not your own doing, or that whole section there in the beginning, by grace, you have been saved through faith. That whole statement is all of it. I'm gonna lean towards the third one or the second one, faith, because I'm reformed and of course correct. But regardless, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The, the, The reality is you can only be saved by grace or faith. God has to provide at minimum one of them, wherever you stand. So he's the one who did it. You would not be able to be saved without him. He had to do this. And I think, honestly, I think it's doubling down. You did nothing in all of this. Even your regeneration, even you going, but I called out on God. I called in faith. You wouldn't have done that if you were spiritually dead. You understand? He made you spiritually alive, therefore you called on him. You would have never been able to even do that. That's the difference. And stress that enough. God's a big deal. I'll leave it at that, okay? I will say this. In verse nine, the word is boast. If it's intriguing to you, the word for boast is the same word in Greek where we get our word neck from. Um, and that's actually curious. I was always confused by that. Uh, I think, and, and I don't know how right I am in this, but think of the neck. You know, everything that we do comes from the brain, but what holds up the brain, right? The neck. It's the, the you know, our cultural idiom. The husband is the head, but the, the wife is the neck. But it's curious because like really the neck only does, the neck muscles only do what the brain tells it. If the brain said neck stop working, you, the neck wouldn't be able to do anything, right? So all, all boasting gets to go to the brain. The brain is the one deciding everything. I don't know if that's what it is, but that's the same word there and the result of works that so no one would boast. We do not have the ability to boast. This leaves us with verse 10 and then we're done. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I do not want to add to the Bible at all, okay? But my sense of the text, what I want to do is reading from verse 9 to 10, that our salvation is not a result of works, and then beginning of 10, I feel like I want to put the words, but rather, okay? The reason is, it, it feels like it reads, our salvation is not a result of works, but rather, you are the work, That seems to be what it's saying as I read through the text, and it seems to be more clear in the Greek. The idea is like, no, you're you're thinking you could do things for salvation, but what's crazy is now that you're saved, you are actually 
his work. And, and I've shared this with you guys before, but that word workmanship is the word poema. It's where we get our word poem from. The idea is he, you are his poetry. You're writing this out. So now you are walking in what he has for you. That's the difference there. Now it goes on to say, uh, for we are his workmanship, that's that poema word, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's what's beautiful. Now that, even though before we were dead, verse one, now that we're made alive, uh, it uses a different word here for made alive. It uses the word created. This word uh, appears in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. It also appears in Genesis one. It's the same word that God made something out of nothing. He made something out of nothing. So let's tie these two together because it's actually helpful. Now that we're created, 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 5, 17, you're a new creature, you're made new in Christ. We have to ask, why are we made? Why did God make us alive and make us a new creature? Well, in Genesis 1, he made us human beings to cultivate and subdue the earth. There's a why behind it. Well, on this side now, he's made you alive for a reason. That reason is good works. I made a, um, like a, a deck trampoline at my house for the kids to play on. I want you to think of how odd it would be if one night after work I invited you over and we get to the house at the same time and my wife Candace is on the trampoline sitting Indian style and, or that's, I guess that's a racist term, I'm sitting crisscross applesauce. There's a, sitting crisscross applesauce and she's got like an electric burner on one side. She's got a cutting board. She's over here stirring pasta and she's making dinner out on the trampoline, okay? And we get home and I go, <laughs> What are, you, what are you doing right now? Why are you on the trampoline making dinner? This, that doesn't make... Now, the, the reason it's silly and it's stupid is because like, that's not what the trampoline was made for. The trampoline was made for the kids to jump around. We have an entire kitchen, like counters and a fridge and a sink. Why would you be making dinner right here? The trampoline was not made to have dinner be made on it. That's not what it's made for. And so now you and I, being made new, we're given our why. We were made for good works. Check it out. This is so crazy. For you new believers, this is why it's so difficult for you to try to go back to your old life. Because you go back and, oh, those of you who have been a Christian for a while, remember those old days? Like you try to go back to your old life and like you felt this conviction. Oh, that was the worst and the best all at once. Like, why can't I watch movies with nudity in them anymore? Why can't I say those words? Why can't I do this with my girlfriend? Why do I feel bad all of a sudden? Where's this guilt? Because the Holy Spirit's convicting us because now you're a new creature. You've been made new. You've been made alive, even though you were dead, and you were made for what? For good works. You're made for those good works. This is why pornography is like detrimental to your soul because it's working against the very groove in which you are now made new. The grain of wood is now pushing against that going, this isn't right. It's eroding your soul. It's killing you. Now, those good works were actually prepared way beforehand at the end of verse 10, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, whether it's beforehand of creation or uh, before we were made alive, regardless, here's what I do know. He has a plotting of good works in front of you right now, believer. Do you understand? Okay, this is the process of sanctification. He has a thousand things for the rest of your life he wants you to do. They're already set. You're already, it's already determined. And, and when you don't walk in those things, you're walking against your very creature, um, creative, made new, spiritually uh, um, moment. That you're, you're working, it's now against your very telos. That's what's going on. And so now you have in front of you these good things, and when you walk in them, you're going, that's it. That's what you were created to do. This is why Al Walter says, all of life is religion. Let me finish with uh, this quote from John Stott that I think he goes full circle and I think is helpful for us um, as we fin- finished out in verse 10, he says this, thus the paragraph ends as it began with our human walk. It's a Hebrew idiom for our manner of life. 
Formerly, we walked in trespasses and sins in which the devil had trapped us. Now we walk in good works, which God has eternally planned for us to do. The contrast is complete. It is a contrast between two lifestyles, evil and good. And behind them, two masters, the devil and God. So clear in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. What could possibly have affected such a change? Great question. Just this, a new creation by the grace and the power of God. Now, I don't know, and I'm not saying this is like canon or law. I don't know of a better picture, and maybe it's just for me personally, than the tub in front of me right now for this. Because even if you're not a believer, or even if you're a believer in here and you've been a believer for a while and you feel like, and God feels far, I don't know if he's moving, is God moving anymore? The declaration that God is still making people alive is gonna like physically, visibly be in front of us in a couple minutes. People are gonna tell you, no, you may feel that way, but I'm telling you, he is still making people alive. I'm one of them. He is still making people alive. And people are declaring that verses one through three were true of me. I was dead, but now because of what God has done, I'm alive. It's a perfect depiction of Ephesians chapter two, verse one, one through 10. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for uh, Ephesians chapter two. We're grateful, honestly, we have an opportunity to uh, read through it and study it. We pray, God, that we would, I, 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 for believers, I pray for us as believers that we would, um, we would do our best to recall, uh, do our best to sit in and meditate on what you have done in our life. I do pray that we would be saturated with your goodness, God, and we would brag on you. We would be so happy to declare that for all of eternity, um, in the coming ages, people are going to see how good you are, how loving you are, how merciful you are. Um, Thank you for that. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.